Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast for part two of the Rick Marshall interview, where we resume his discussion of meeting Jim Shooter and starting his career in the Marvel black and white magazines of the late 70s. And my first few weeks, I was actually in Shooter's office at a desk there. And it was good because I could see how he interacted with people. And the first assignment he gave me was give me a pile of Chris Claremont's stories. He was really not pleased with Claremont's writing. He's too wordy. I don't know he's probably wouldn't admit to now, but these reservations about Claremont's work. And could I rein him in? Could I edit the next story that comes in? Well, I did. And Claremont exploded. He didn't want anyone to touch his work. And basically, the editor's work at Marvel, I think, is fair to say, that is before the writers write. It's putting the teams together. It's doing a lot of what if and giving direction to a story and and all like that. It's not copy editing at the end of the stage, you know, grammar, like I can't even pitch good or something like that. But what did I know? So Claremont exploded and all like that. And it was not a good start. But then I was just in the magazine division. I got Ralph Macchio as a assistant. 77 or 78. I cannot. I'm sure you guys know better than I do. I got Mackey as an assistant, and I heard this way afterward while I was still at Marvel, but heard from Shooter that, you know, I was the only guy showing up with a jacket and tie in the office. And one of his hopes for me was that I would rein in Mackey and some of the crazy guys on the staff and be a little more professional. And he thinks I was just flipped by them. But I was always nuts. I just didn't look like a nut. <laughs> so well, sometimes you look like a nut. Sometimes you know, Rick. <laughs> That's right. You know, That's you, the next you fed me that line. I, I had to go there. <laughs> Thank you. We set that up. The whole time I was at Marvel, it was like one big frat party. It was the best. Well, a lot of my jobs have been the best job I had in my life, but we had a lot of fun. We did crazy things, practical jokes that would fill an encyclopedia, the third horn encyclopedia. That size would be practical jokes at Marvel. And that was with your impersonation stuff, right? That you, yeah. you, you were able to do the voices? That was part of it. That was part of it. But I, having that, said, I love that story. I will do that. I probably won't do the voices because... Oh, come on. Some people are still alive. But um, <laughs> before the tangent gets lost, in spite of all that, maybe because of it, okay? Creative ferment. But I am still so proud of a lot of the work I did at Marvel and some of the stuff that was done for the first time and fighting for creator rights, which has also been lost. I mean, I think I have a big role in that. It would have happened anyway, but I fought for it like mad. So I'm proud of a lot of stuff we did. But Ralph and I had this. Ralph, you should have him on sometime because he's a survivor. He's kind of shy. But if you draw him out, I mean, think of how long he was at Marvel and, and everything, right? And, and he was so good in Karate Kid. I'm sorry. I just, I just always have to say that when we talk about it. Sorry. It's about right. I don't know if he's sick of that or not, but he should oh. be. <laughs> I bet he is. <laughs> I used to tell him that I heard through a mutual friend that the actor from Karate Kid is sick to death of that guy at Marvel because he's always getting people coming up to him asking him to draw Spidey for him. So, you know. He learned to draw because of that, actually. Ralph and I had this office in the middle of the literally the middle of the city block floor, 575 Madison Avenue, the geographical center with glass walls on two sides and two doors. So we could close the doors and see the parade of humanity walking past. 
The bullpen was right opposite out one window and the Xerox machines. So when freelancers were in or staffers, we'd see them walking past. We'd see them in the bullpen. We'd see them making, you know, 200 copies on the Xerox machine. And because the doors were closed, Ralph and I would make comments or provide their voices or do phony dialogue or something. It was a riot. I would also draw caricatures of people, have a little bit of a gift there. And it was kind of suicidal, but Ralph, when he liked them, would put them up on his bulletin board. At one point, there were like three dozen of, <laughs> you know, Tony DiZuniga's wife and um, <laughs> Roger Stern. <laughs> and who did I love drawing? Roger Slifer, you know, all these people. And what did I care, you know? Jim, you asked about the voices. I mean, there were all sorts of practical jokes we did. I'd love for these to be collected. But one of them was... And God bless the memory of Bill Mantlow and his horrible end. But one day in the office, we saw that Mantlow was in doing Xeroxing and all like this. And we didn't plan this. These things were all spontaneous. But I could do Mantlow's voice pretty well. Okay, so we knew he wasn't home. So Ralph called his apartment, Mantlow's, in the voice of Chris Claremont. He could do Claremont very well. (laughs) Okay, so we knew Mantlow wasn't home. So Ralph left a message in the voice of Chris Claremont that was a little bit provocative or charging him with this or accusing I don't know what. And then later that afternoon, Claremont was in the office, and I called him as Bill Mantlow, called his machine, and left a message. Well, the next time they were in the office together, they were pissed at each other. What do you mean by whatever it was, telling me this or accusing (laughs) me of that? I didn't call you. It's on my message machine. Prove it. I erased it, but don't do that again. Well, okay, that's all we need to hear. So we kept doing it, and a big feud developed. <laughs> it went on and on. They never knew. Anyway, that's the kind of thing we did. <laughs> that's just awesome. I love that. That makes me I so happy. That. It wasn't really nice to him, but Peter Ledger, who came from Australia and worked on Weird World, he wore out his welcome eventually. And when he went to California at the San Diego convention, well, we got even with him. Now, how did Peter Ledger wear out his welcome? Yeah, okay. Well, I hesitated at that. He sent some samples when we were cooking up Weird World as what it turned into a three-issue, you know, deluxe magazine format color. By the way, here's a mistake I made. I wish I could pull back. I'm proud of that series, and I think it was okay with Buscema's pencils, Nebra's inks, and Ledger's airbrushing and color effects and everything. But I was too full of myself. I've never written this, but I wanted to be boss of the assembly line on that factory. What do I mean by that? With the full color facilities we had for John to do the pencils and Nebra's, his style I was in love with at that point, I thought we'll go back and forth on this and it's going to be the greatest visual thing we could do. Rudy would do some of the foreground figures in black ink. Then it would go back to John maybe doing some other details or Ledger doing backgrounds and watercolor. And then Nebras would go in with colored inks and do more detail, just colored inks. And, you know, we could get a three-dimensional look. And then Ledger would finish it with airbrush effects and everything. Well, a lot of the stuff is too fancy for its own good. And John Busama, who I got to know very well, and we went to Europe together, all this nicest, gentlest guy in the world and an awesome talent. He was dying to do everything on that book. Pencils, inks, finishes, everything. And he gave me samples and he would shower me with sketches and pages and everything. And it was 
wonderful stuff. But I was so fixed on wanting to manage that production line that I said, no, thanks. And that is always a regret because I knew it disappointed him. He did great pencils. And I think overall, it would have been a better book. And today been like, you know, oh, there's Howard Pyle and there's John Buscema in that weird role. You know, it, we'd see it differently today. So I regret that. Oh, that's really interesting. It was a beautiful book, though. I love that one. Have you ever seen it, Alex? Yeah, the colors are kind of intense, right? I remember Bushima liked it because he wasn't that crazy about superheroes and wanted to do some fantasy, different kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It was gorgeous. I thought unfairly it got called Windy Penny-like, and I thought that was not the fact. I don't think Basimas ever looked better. I mean, his work on that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it really was. Someday I'll dig up his pencils, which I have a lot of copies of, just the pure pencils. Oh, I would and, love to see yeah, that. Yeah, beautiful. And the samples to convince me he could have done it all, and he would have. But, yeah, Wendy Penny was riding high at that point, and I think one of the first issues of Epic, I commissioned her to do a story. I think so. Yeah, that's right. It did. Yeah. But if there was any inspiration, Bill, it was really, you know where that grew out of? Now, Weird World had been a black and white comic few years before, so it existed. But the genesis of that color, the three-part color series, was Lord of the Rings that Bakshi was doing. Mm -hmm, right, right, exactly. And we tried to get the rights to do a comic book version of that, to have him and his staff draw it, mm -hmm. or, you know, frames from the cartoon or whatever. And then we'd negotiate with the Tolkien estate. I mean, it was a big mess. It never happened. So then we thought, or Ralph said, because I didn't know Marvel history, he said, well... We had this thing called Weird World. It's kind of the same thing. Let's just revive that. And Mike Plug had done the black and white comic and very well. And then we talked with him about doing this project. And he said, yes, 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 yes. And then no. And it had to do with creators' rights. And we didn't have them established yet. And it put us in quite a hole with the deadline. He had done samples, too, and they were great. So my only little reference to that creative speed bump was you might see in one of the Weird World foldouts, a three-page foldout, when the characters enter the city and there's 100 characters doing this and that, and buildings at night and emptying chamber pots and all this business. There's a little monkey in a cage, hard to see, and the name of the monkey and a little sign in the cage was Gulp, which is Plug spelled backwards. Oh, okay. Just the scheduling of that. I didn't mind him opting out but it made it very tough so uh, that's a little in joke so, so rick i have a question about that later on it was either in marvel spotlight or marvel premiere i don't remember there was a weird world one shot and it was by plug was that a colorized version of the black and white piece that he had done earlier do you know i wish i could answer that i don't know i don't know i would guess yes i mean i i never knew that but based on what you're saying that'd be my guess now and then Shooter basically ran him sort of, well, Shooter was responsible for Plug leaving, according to, to Plug, I know. So he was a major talent. That might have even been before us. I would guess that might have been a colorized version of that, but I don't know that at all. I don't. Now, something I just want to put out there just for the listeners, some of the magazines that Rick worked on, Tomb of Dracula, Savage Sword of Conan, the color super specials, including Kiss, Marvel Preview, Howard the Duck. Tell us about working on those magazines and working with the artists and writers and how that compared to editing the newspaper stuff. Yeah, I think the 
step up to Marvel, and I don't mean necessarily step up in quality or anything, but just longer stories, the dynamics of writing longer stories and characters with more investment in their personalities and such was because my association with Europe and going over there and bringing back stacks of graphic novels. And I became very excited, and I even made a couple speeches to my old groups in the newspaper syndication business, the Comics Council and such, saying that graphic novels are the wave of the future. I mean, I was implying that newspaper strips would eventually die, you know, wither away and die. I'm so excited by graphic novels and longer stories. So it was very exciting to me. And working on the longer stories, I mean, Weird World turned out to be three issues. It was a happy coincidence. You know, the Hulk TV show was riding high. So we did the Hulk magazine, eventually it's a color magazine. And those were longer stories. And one thing I was happy to do was Stan and, and Shooter said these stories in the magazine, the Hulk stories, should be a little deeper than the funny book, as Jim used to call them. Maybe everyone calls them that. I don't know, the four-color comics. So I was happy to talk with my go-to writer on a lot of these projects was Doug Mensch, and I liked working with him, and he was very responsive. And we just did a story about child abuse and some deeper stories that had implications and more subtexts and things. I mean, they weren't. It wasn't Anton Chekhov or anything, but it was the right time for me with my ambitions and sensibilities to get my teeth into longer stories and more mature art. It seems like that's a difference. A lot of Marvel seems almost childlike in the 80s compared to when you were working on it in the later 70s. It seems like that later 70s stuff, I can appreciate it as a 40-year-old. One thing, I didn't do any favors, but I'd be at some of the meetings where the whole staff would be talking, all editors and assistant editors would be talking about characters and premises and, you know, some what-ifs, not the title what-if, but, you know, it wasn't very smart of me, but I used to talk about Mucus Man, which is my generic title for silly superheroes, <laughs> and really kind of suicidal, you know. They would talk about, you know, Roger Stern would say, let's have this fight go for six days, six pages, you know. <laughs> I just didn't do it. You know? <laughs> just didn't do it. And I shouldn't do it. And I, you know, I used to talk about all these guys in their pajamas having fights. Let's really talk. About, well, that's what paid my paycheck. One difference between working with the strip guys and the comic book guys is that the comic book guys were essentially fans who could draw and write. And so they really devoted themselves to the Marvel continuity. And then you brought a bit of a more mature strip and editorial perspective to that. So was there pushback? Was there conflict over trying to meld a more adult humanist perspective with the kind of fam superhero artist writer perspective? You know what? There was not. Partly because I was my own little world. I was given the black and white magazines and the new color projects. So people really didn't care. That's one thing. The second thing was Stan specifically told me when I was hired, wouldn't it be great in these magazines? He wasn't talking about the four color books, but in these magazines, if I could bring some of my strip friends in to work a freelance. So Frank Bowl, who did the what was he doing in the Winnie Winkle strip of all things? Leonard Starr was going to draw something for us. I tried to get Frank Robbins, who eventually did do stuff, I don't know, maybe for Marvel, yeah. but I think for DC. Tons of Marvel stuff. Okay, there we are. Yeah, and I didn't keep track after I left Marvel because of bad taste and everything. But I did call a lot of these people in and worked, so it wasn't all the Marvel people. So that was the second aspect. 
on the super special with Kiss. Now we're really getting specific about the Rick as the mature editor and looking for more sophisticated storylines and such. Yeah. Well, four bigger idiots I never worked with in my life. <laughs> no, I, I worked on the Kiss title that there was not the one where their blood was in the ink, supposedly. It was the right because you came in after the Beatles one, right? Right around that time. Was yeah, that's when you... right. Beatles one, yeah. And I remember that was uh, David Anthony Kraft, who had some of the magazines before I was there. It was either the Beatles book or another one where on the first page it says David Anthony Kraft presents Beatles or whatever. And I remember Stan hearing Stan in his office reaming him out. You don't present anything. I present everything. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. That's amazing. Can you do David Anthony Kraft responding to Stanley? Yeah, well, I could wet my pants, but this is an audio thing, not a video <laughs> thing. So you wouldn't. <laughs> oh, man, he, he was. He was rough. The Kiss book, we treated totally as camp. I didn't try to. So that's why I had Ralph write it. Ralph Macchio wrote it. He, I don't think ever wrote many comics. But that was fun. And if you read it, and Ralph would have to tell you, and John Romita Jr. inked it, some of the visual and half the dialogue references there were in jokes, stuff we used to say to us in the office that no one would get beyond a circle of five or seven of us in the Marvel office. I mean, the whole thing was a goof. And it was a story and a mystery and all this business. And, you know, I tried to upgrade. We had a four-page fold-out, you know, a painting that Bob Larkin did and everything. But that doesn't fit in with my... I'll tell you another story. Remember the Moonlight series? Yep. Well, Moonlight be went on to become big things. So is Star-Lord. He's in the, now he's a defender of the... Yeah. yeah. Well, the we Guardian sort of, of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. One thing we did with I asked Ralph since I didn't know Marvel history. I said in our in the magazine line here, are there any characters who've been established and maybe didn't get a fair shake at a little audience and then they were banded that you think we can blow the dust off and revive them? I was grateful for Ralph, and he said I always liked Star Lord. I think Carmine Infantino had done the art on them. And Moon Knight was one, too. Well, that was the first work that we did as a backup in the Hulk magazine. And Doug wrote a multi-chapter story that continued from issue to issue. And Bill Sienkiewicz's first work for us was he came in with a portfolio and I said, you know what, Neil Adams is going to want this back someday, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and if he doesn't, Stan Drake would, you know, Stan Drake's work. But anyway, I mean, he blew me away. And we, that was his first assignment from us at Marvel. And it took off, and you know, Moon Knight got his own book and all like that. And there's a little insight about Marvel. And one of the times I went to Europe on Marvel's behalf, went to a publisher I had known from the syndicate, big publisher in Denmark that had subsidiaries in Germany and Norway and Sweden and other countries. And this editorial staff loved Moon Knight. They said it's not outright superhero, it's a costumed hero, no magic powers, but it's sort of like they kept saying sort of like Cary Grant in To Catch a Thief. Okay. And they loved it so much that they were willing to pay for commission stories, enough stories, enough pages that they could do it as a comic there. No overhead to Marvel, and then we would get the rights to publish it in the US. They just wanted that character and to have first crack out it internationally. Oh, it was a dream. And I went back from that trip thinking I had a real feather in my cap. The business office was always nice to me because I had these connections. Shooter was always jealous. 
why are you going to these lunches with the European publishers, and why don't they ask me? <laughs> you know, I was dying to say because you're thing from the Adams family, and you're a dork, and you don't understand where Europe is on a map, you know. Yeah, but I don't. So anyway, <laughs> I come back, and I tell Stan that Gutenberghus, that was the name of the group in Denmark, and I told him about their love of Moon Knight and don't change a thing, do the characters were doing it. You know, don't change a thing. They just want to be able to commission and do it. They could have invented their own copycat, but they wanted this. They love Sienkiewicz's art, by the way. And Stan, giving this to him on a silver platter, and he said, now, this is a warning to you. It's not a really rude ethnic reference, but it's what people used to call Swedes when they wanted to be rude. But Stan said, I give him this whole presentation, and Stan said, I'm not going to let any square heads tell me how to do comics. And he, he said no to the whole thing. He didn't want to do it. I mean, we had a contract ready to sign. It was amazing. They didn't want to tell us how to do it. They wanted us to do what we had already started. They just wanted to be first in line to license it. It was crazy. Moon Knight continued, of course, and we did license. I mean, eventually they did custom superheroes. Their German subsidiary was more successful with them than their Danish subsidiary. But this was a time in my life where working with European publishers, still going to those conventions, commissioning European artists. I mean, it was... Great. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring the story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. The Howard the Duck magazine, Bill Mantlo wrote a sex scene, and you edited that book. And I've seen a couple different versions, the unpublished and published version. What led to deciding one panel versus another on that page. I saw this online a couple months ago with two versions of it, I guess it was, right? As it was published and as it was first drawn or something. I barely remember the controversy, but I think I remember being afraid of, there wasn't a code book, but being afraid of pushback. And I thought, if I remember this right, and I, I'm willing to admit that I might not remember it right, but I, I think suggesting that we could do a sex reference without showing them humping by either fading to black or whatever, but having Howard smoke a cigarette afterwards, you know, that cliche. And I thought that would be a little bit funny as well as being, you know, making the reference. And I think that's how it was published, but I don't remember much controversy in the office. I remember sending it around for people's other editors' opinions and such, but it was not a big problem or controversy beforehand in the office. I really didn't like working with Matlow too much. I thought, you know, he could write 80 pages an hour. And to me, it sometimes showed that way. And I know he has a lot of fans, but he was so entrenched as a writer of that series. It was just like, well, okay, that's Bill. And that sex scene. Yeah, I barely remembered it. So I saw it online a few months ago. 
I want to go over just some names of people to degree that you're comfortable. Tell us how your experience or impression of them was when you were working there. So Gene Colin, how was working with him? He was just great. Well, that's all I can say. He was almost always on time. He was almost always pleading poverty, which was fine because I could give him work. I loved Colin and Palmer together. I mean, even though it was a horrible story and a crappy licensing thing, but Jaws too. the artwork, seeing them work together, Colin's layouts. He was just great to work with. And he loved milking me for stories of some of the strip artists I knew. Oh, wow. How about Don McGregor? Well, he was short, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess he still is. Uh, he might still be short. Yeah. I remember asking him the first time he came in the office if he were standing in a hole, but I had not. Anyway, this is stupid. Don was... Apologies to Don McGregor. Apologies to Don McGregor, yeah. No, that's being short is one thing I liked about him because I'm kind of short myself, you know. That's totally stupid to go there. But Don had, this came in the middle of the transition or the introduction of the creator's rights contracts. And I wanted to ask Ralph or my good, good friend, I still keep in touch with Elliot Brown before we did this interview, if they remembered this. But I know there was a story published that was Don's that was not credited to him. And someone wrote me recently that Don is still upset. And I know it was a problem. My memory is that at the very last moment, he withdrew it. We had the script for a while, or maybe the complete story, and it was like, hey, let's plug it into that issue of preview. And then he withdrew it, I think, because he wanted better rates or creators' rights or something, and the company was not willing to do it. So we withdrew it. And then what the heck? How would we do that? That was issue? this one of the the show? Was this part of the Sherlock Holmes knockoff? Was this yeah. Hodaya Twist? Hodaya oh. Twist. That's right. I'd forgotten. Yeah, that. and I liked his. I was just proud of myself that I got that. I was, I, oh, I was yeah. just happy. <laughs> I thank you for doing it because I forgot the name of it. But if it appeared with my name as the writer on it, one thing I remember was we were going to run it and I was thinking of pseudonyms to credit it, right? Because I guess Marvel owned it or half owned it or whatever. It already had already been paid or something. And I was going to put it in as like a wink to the readers saying script Greg McDonald or, you know, some twist on his name. Hey, that's appropriate. A Hodiah twist on his name. But, you know, Gregor McDonald or something. Well, I guess we didn't. And I guess my name appeared on it. And if that's so, I remember there were a lot of bad feelings, but Don always has a chip on his shoulder and he was always looking for controversies and Ralph got involved and he had a history with Don and all like that. That's all I remember of that. So that was unintentional on your end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I did write some stuff, not many stories. I mean, I wrote the Jaws 2 adaptation, which was it was so crappy, no one else wanted to write it. <laughs> that was like the worst movie ever. I can't imagine being put on that to try to fix it or oh, make it more palatable through comic book eyes. I don't know. Bill, the only one that was worse was Meteor. The, oh, the, yeah. Oh, that my was God. Awful. Did you write that, too? No, I don't think I wrote that. Bad enough, I edited it. But <laughs> I, I went to the preview. That was one good thing about working at Marvel. I'd see the preview of Battlestar Galactica before it came out. You know, all the studios were trying to sell us right. on stuff. And I saw that, and I thought, oh, this would give a headache to an aspirin. I mean, it was awful. <laughs> Shooter yeah. didn't care about it. Stan wanted us to do it. Stan. And I, I went <laughs> and I said, Stan, this movie is awful. 
I don't think in the final weeks they're going to make it better. What's the thing? And he said, Rico. Always call me Rico. I said, Rico, I'll tell you, I've got a thing for Natalie Wood. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> he had a thing for Natalie Wood. Oh, that's amazing. You know, unfortunately, Robert Wagner wasn't there in time to save us from that. Anyway, so the movie, I mean, the. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway. Mr. Anyway. Walken is not amused. <laughs> that's about right so you know there were some turkeys and we had to do them but getting back to don i wish i could remember and ralph will remember probably better than i because he had had a history with don mcgregor if you would ask me cold if in fact i was credited as the writer of that not just the editor of the book i'd say no 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 that's crazy if it happened. I don't remember those circumstances, but I remember it was a real problem and Don was upset and he had a right to be upset. And I think he had been previously paid. So it wasn't that I got money that he should have gotten for writing it, you know. And and Alex, just a, a tiny pushback on what you said about the fans. I know what you were saying, but McGregor, what he was doing on Panther's Rage at that time, he was not just a fanboy. I mean, he was trying to expand that more than, I would say, Rick, more than the other writers there. And there were some other interesting ones like Gerber. But McGregor was something very different there and a weird fit for Marvel at the time, I would say. I do remember when I got along with them that I thought he had, I didn't read his stuff. I didn't know it that well, but I knew that he had better sensibilities. That's what I'm saying. And he was able to talk about other writers and other series and his ambitions were higher. And, you know, I used to say, why don't you write books or books in addition or something like that? And there were other writers and artists who I felt had those qualities. Don wasn't the only one. Tell us your impression of Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. This is going to sound like backhanded compliments, but it's not. They rose to their level. They were workmanlike. They were very professional. Their imaginations were great. They were quick studies with artists and storylines and maybe variations of same. So I respected the heck out of them. But a little like Roy Thomas, they were a world unto themselves. Mostly you didn't touch their work. They earned that. Do you remember working on or editing the Gil Kane Blackmark Marvel magazine reprint? Yeah, that might have even been part of the McGregor problem. But there was I kept the deadlines pretty well, meaning I was usually normally late, not absurdly late. But we find ourselves in a real bind with Marvel preview, the black and white line with a book that we had to put together and issue. I don't know if Gil had told me beforehand or how I knew it. Maybe Ralph knew of it or something, but Gil had done that Black Mark story already. It was already in the can, and he had pitched it to Marvel maybe as a paperback or some other format. It had been done as a paperback. It was a signet paperback. Okay, It had so, already been done. So that's why I remember that. So I don't know how we got away with them reformatting it as a comic book. Sloppy seconds. <laughs> we made a quick deal with him to do it in that format. Bob Larkin or someone did a painted cover. I don't think it was Gil's cover art. I'd known Gil previously and knew him afterwards and everything up in Connecticut. We were neighbors. I didn't have to lift a finger to that. It was all the bullpen just reformatting it. So. And how did you like Gil Kane? Tell us about that. Parboiled. 
Yeah. Savage. That's a WC Fields line. He was difficult to work with. He was a difficult, even up in Connecticut, in social situations. Anyway, I never got along really well with him. And there were a lot of cartoons. We would all hang around together, all have lunches and weekend parties and everything. But for instance, he used to think Leonard Starr was an anti-Semite, and he didn't like Gil for that reason. Did you I hear was... a lot of Rick, my boys? I mean... There you go. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> oh boy. Absolutely. You know, back in the day when I was doing Green Lantern, I just, sorry. I met him four different times, and he, I got so many Bill my boys, I, I didn't know what to do with it. So I just had to say that. Always my boys, yeah. And I don't know how tall you are, but he was about 6'5 or something like that. So it was yeah, easy he, he for him to look down on people, which he did yeah. rhetorically as well as. Uh, you had mentioned working with Doug Mensch. What was about his writing that you liked? You know, a little bit like Marvin Len, maybe I would have used them more if I could. Oh, by the way, before I forget it, we were talking about the magazine department unto itself and everything and why people were not or who we work with and everything. I tried like heck. I told you Sinkevich came in with a portfolio and new artists, either with a few issues under their belt or coming in with portfolios in that general time that I was there. I tried to get Frank Miller to do magazine work, direct color magazine work. John Byrne, who was already hitting his stride then, different people. But they did not want to work for the magazines, better color, better quality, better formats, because they were intent on working on the funny books they grew up with. There was a fan aspect to that. Would, yeah. you, would you say and that? that changed. Yeah, fan aspect, definitely. That changed, of course, but it stymied me at the time because I wanted to make stars out of it. I knew they were good, you know. And then Doug Mensch, did you feel it was more of the adult flavor that you liked? Yes, I think so, but he was very easy to work with. The brainstorming sessions I would have with Doug or with Ralph, too, were just fabulous. He would see things and suggest things. He didn't have much ego. He could dig in his heels, of course, but he was just a wonderful, creative person to work with, and I appreciate it. Comics Journal gave me a little grief after a while of saying Marshall is doing exciting things on Marvel, at Marvel, except maybe he's relying on one writer more than he should. Well, I was happy doing that. Tell us about working with some of the Filipino artists, Alfredo Alcala, and Tony Dizaniga. Tell us about those guys. They were great. They would take direction. They would, you know, turn in pages before you finished uh, telling them what you wanted. They were amazing. Alfredo was someone like some artists like Joe Rubenstein and others who would love to talk about the classic illustrators and such. Never got along that well with Joe, except bullshitting about the great illustrators of the past. Joe knows his stuff. <laughs> Alfredo used to come into the office to drop off a story or something. You know, he'd say, yeah, and the great uh, pirate artist, uh, Frank Brangvin from uh, England. <laughs> and he'd go on and on, and Ralph would be laughing in the corner. I knew who he was talking about, you know, but boy, did he know his stuff. He was very good to work with. Ernie Chan was, I mean, I have no regrets about him anyway, but Rudy Nebrez was great. Only funny story, is Tony DeZunica still alive? I'm not sure, but that's okay. Keep going. <laughs> Maybe if we do a 10th anniversary tape, I'll tell a story about Tony. Marie Severin was great to work with, and she would do caricatures, too, and we'd trade them and everything. You and Marie actually bonded on the caricature ability. Is that right? And other things. I told you when I was a kid, I knew John would visit him in his studio. So I was already in the Severin orbit, but I loved, loved, loved 
Maurice Severin, an artist and a professional and a great sense of humor. And we just connected on so many levels. She was an island of sanity. In a fantastic color sense, right? Oh, absolutely. In a great color sense. And she understood Stan perfectly on colors. When I was there, Stan had withdrawn. When he did convention appearances, he did not want to field questions. He didn't know the changes of the new characters of the new powers. Or he didn't. So he would just do autographs and such. At that point in the office, he was not in any of the creative sessions or new series, new titles or anything. Shooter would talk to him, but all Stan would do, and it's very important, but he would just okay all the covers. Every cover, Stan would okay. And it was a gift in there. It really was a privilege and something I never knew from my other background or instincts or experience at the syndicates. Stan had a genius, has a genius for... I mean, we can call it marketing more than any, whatever, to look at a cover and what words to bounce and what colors to have and relative size and color combination. Marie understood all that. And it was, I think, from years of Stan's training. But, oh, what a sense he had for that. Also, page construction, which I could have used to better effect at the syndicates, but where to place balloons and sound effects to lead the reader's eye through pages. I hope no one tries to take those gifts away from Stan. I know a lot of people carp at him, but there was no one better in my experience than those type basic comics 101 stuff, right? The Earl Norum covers. Tell us about working with Earl Norum and the covers for a lot of those magazines. He was also one of my go-to guys because he was professional from, you know, working on the paperbacks and men's magazines and everything. He'd Never push back. He'd never insert himself too much. He would always do. He was the nicest, you know, he could be your neighbor in the neighborhood, and uh, except he was effing great. No, not great. Just thoroughly professional, would do what you asked. Not flashy, but he checked all the boxes, you know. Step above him, in my preference, was Bob Larkin of the cover artists there. So they'd just be, you know, my go-to guys, really. So would you essentially call one of them and say, hey, I need a cover for this comic? Is that how that would work? Yes. Usually, I'll tell you what, usually Ralph and I would talk or I would talk with the writers. I would do thumbnails because I had art direction in my past and I was a cartoonist. I would do thumbnails. Then I'd take them to Marie and she would do better thumbnails, logo placement, stuff like that. And then the artists would come in and we'd talk about everything from deadlines to whether it be look painterly or, you know, whatever, whatever. So Earl Norum essentially had layouts to go off of, and so did Bob Larkin, and then they would paint their stuff and bring it back to you. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. Wow. Okay, so the last three names I want to go over, and this kind of starts winding down toward the end of Marvel, but it's okay to talk about your first interactions toward the end of each name. So tell me about your impression of Archie Goodwin. Yeah, Archie and I sort of overlapped a bit because he had worked in newspaper strips, was still writing Secret Agent Corrigan and knew some of the people in syndication and everything. So we had a lot of mutual friends. But most of my time at Marvel, he would just drop in occasionally. or We would small talk about the strip business or mutual friends. When I got bounced from Epic, he was hired to do that. So we had some interaction. I know he felt uncomfortable about that situation, and I did. It was not that he was gunning for that job, but I think he was right for it. So, I mean, that's all I could tell you about him. He was a very good strip writer. He could have stayed in that all his life. But, you know, he was so shy and self-effacing, it was hard to have any other impression of Archie, you know. He was more of a quiet guy? 
Definitely. Very quiet, very shy. Ledger, I'll very quickly finish that story. He got to be a pain in the ass at the end of the third Weird World book because he was always asking for advances. He stopped renting a hotel or something, and he wanted to sleep and did sleep in the Marvel offices, which was against the building codes. Art dealers were calling me because he was double dealing his artwork. He was getting advances and promised to sell pages to Stu Reese board and someone else. He was cheating art dealers. What used to be charming about him got to be uncomfortable. He used to walk around naked just in his tidy briefs. He used to like to play the aboriginal man or something. <laughs> he, took, he took garlic pills like crazy. And you could tell when he was coming down the hall because the garlic. So we just ran out of patience with him. And I brought him to the very first convention, comic San Diego Con, that Marvel ever went to. Before then, it was just dealers, comic book dealers in their boxes selling old issues. And no company had ever set up there before. And I suggested we do that. And it was just so fans could see Weird World being produced. The artist came out and Ledger did with his airbrush and, you know, he ate that up and everything. This goes with practical jokes. We were so sick of Ledger at that point that we finagled ourselves into it. I shouldn't be proud of this. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> yes, I am. We got into his hotel room and he took about, you know, 80 vitamins a day and we mix them all up, all the different jars and put water in some and all this business and unscrewed the... Uh, handles on all the dressers in the hotel room and everything sadly he died the next day no, just well no he did die in an ugly way but from that he claimed to us it was oh the, the maids the maids all want me to screw them and i i won't do it so they're out to get me mate you know <laughs> blame the maids you know Okay, and he'd come down to breakfast and he'd say, I'm hungry. Mate, I should order three breakfasts. I've just done 12,000 push-ups. And I said, wait a minute, let's do that arithmetic. And, you know, he would have had to been doing push-ups for a week. That was Ledger, always over the top and everything. So, so Stanley, he wanted you to bring in some European influence to some of his magazines and add some respectability to the Marvel magazine line. Was his goal to just take Jim Warren magazines off of the shelves? Was that essentially the goal with those magazines? And after that, tell us about just working with him toward the end of your stay at Marvel, with about Stanley specifically. That's a great question. I don't think that's the case, because I never heard Jim Warren disparaged. I think the black and white line was really a vestige from, you know, the Goodmans and when Stan worked for his uncles. So it was never that. And I never even did hear when Epic started up, Rico, I wanted to beat heavy metal at their game. No, it was never a part of it either. Warren on the downside or heavy metal lampoon on the upside were ever a consideration in any of that work. How was working with Stan during your few years there? It was just great. He was seldom there because he was establishing, you know, his Los Angeles residency and he had a big place there where he used to tool around on roller skates, if you can picture that. Totally bought into that. But when we would work together, it would really be on the things I've described to you, either the covers or some general direction of things. And one thing I know used to cheese some of the people, and I got a kick out of it, but I didn't know how special it was until it happened that Stan would often come in to my office instead of calling me to his and sit in front of my desk and sometimes just BS about everything in general, about strips or how he, when he did newspaper strips, you know, he was always frustrated. He was never very successful at that. Willie Lumpkin and stuff like that. One time he told me, I thought this was revealing that his, I'll tell you what, maybe he said this a thousand times, maybe never. But one time he told me that his real overarching 
when all is said and done, dream for the Marvel Empire was to do what Disney did with Disneyland, that it becomes such a part of the culture that it's not just a kid's favorite comic book, but his first instinct to dream or to act or to repeat or to live or draw or whatever was to think of Marvel, Marvel, Marvel. And the Disney empire was his goal. Now, how ironic it was that it's no longer with Marvel, was bounced 20 times, and then Disney bought Marvel and all like that, you know. But I always remembered that uh, Disney was like an obsession with him. He told me a few times. Did he essentially want to be the Walt Disney of Marvel Comics? Yeah, that would have been it, sure. That explains some Stanley Presents and all like that, sure. Right. The final name, and then this comes down to what happened with founding Epic. Tell us about, from front to back, working with Jim Shooter. He mostly let me alone in that division. I mean, at one time I thought, I said, I wrote in a bullpen profile I did of him. I drew a caricature of him just from the nipples to the knees, you know, implying that he was too tall to get into one drawing. But I called him the most supportive editor, most supportive Boston editor ever had or something like that. It's mostly because he left me alone. He didn't second guess. He didn't ask to have scripts run past him or teams or cover designs or anything. I mean, if I had questions, I'd go to him. But it was Ralph for everyone in between who really told me what was going on at Marvel. I'm telling you, when I was there, I was a dope about the Marvel Universe. The Grimm brothers, is it right? The brothers Grimm. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Those two guys, the skull masks. There you go. Okay. And in a sense, I said, oh, you mean like the guys who wrote the fairy tales? Well, I mean, it was obvious that's how they got their names. I mean, I was so naive about a lot of the characters and powers and costumes and things. It was stupid. But I had this little empire and Jim left me alone in it. I mean, he would talk to me about deadlines and budgets and I would go to him if I needed him. But until the the two things, starting Epic all by itself and then being bounced from Epic were just very arbitrary. And I don't think his people skills are great. He didn't tell me in either case what was coming, what might have been wrong, if anything was wrong, or what a great opportunity that Epic was instead of the magazines. It was just like both things were very sudden and not good management. So did Shooter take you off of Epic? Is that what happened? Yeah. And was that from any management or direction from Jim Galton or those guys, or was that just him? Uh, Probably Jim Galton. I always had friction with him over budgets, and I can't blame anyone for that. I was waiting outside his office one day, and a meeting was ending, and he came out finishing a sentence, and he's saying, okay, Marshall, I'm not going to do an impression of him. but Too late. <laughs> I wouldn't know what a budget was like if it bit me, you know, and he was probably right. At that. It in the Galton? Just for the listeners, Galton was in the corporate management of Cadence overseeing the comics line, and a lot of what Jim Shooter did came from orders from him. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess so. In any event, Dan never said it was from him, and uh, Galton was the president. You know, he'd come over from Hudson Drug and Cadence Industries. He'd not have a comics background, but a business background. So it was arbitrary. But for instance, we came back from San Diego. All of us had gone out to that convention. When I came back, Lynn Graham, who I think had been Archie Goodwin's girlfriend in the past or something, she was not only at the offices, but in my desk as the editor of the magazines in black and white line. I'd never met her before, didn't know they were contemplating a change. And that's when Jim told me, no, you're going to do Epic Illustrated now. Well, it wasn't Epic at that point. Or maybe it was, but anyway, I would just do Epic. That's not good management. 
I mean, it wasn't like, thank you for doing this. Now we're going to pass it on to someone else. Please help her out. And I did help her out. She was a very nice person. But, yeah, I was very awkward. And you felt disappointed. Believe me, I was happy to concentrate on Epic. I really was. But I just felt slighted that I wasn't in on the, wasn't told that I was going to stop with the magazines. I had some storylines going. I had relationships with artists. It was just crappy management. That's all. It was, it if was, only Twitter had existed then, you would, have, you would have been tweeted. Yeah, a lot of that is true and could have been done better. Well, it was needless anyway that it happened that way. And by the way, if I can say there's stories that I see on the Internet and Wikipedia and everything about the name of Epic, that it was originally planned as Odyssey or something like that, that was never the case. We floated 20, 30 names around. Marie Severn came up with different logos for different titles. And one of them was Odyssey or Odyssey Illustrated or something like that. It was never on the fast track. I mean, that history is not major, but the only thing Stan wanted was to have a title that was small enough and letters large enough that he liked this trick of having some of it transparent and that you could see the background element of a drawing or painting sneak through it. That's the type of thing that floated his boat. That's how it got that logo and title. Jim Shooter told you, okay, you're not going to work on Epic anymore. You're going to be gone. What happened there? Jim said something to me that made it in my mind, made it absolutely impossible for me to work another day there. You're fired. <laughs> Come on, help That'll me. That'll do it. That's an old joke. Come on. He called me. My wife used to say it was like Nazis coming in the middle of the night, knocking the door down. He called me on a Friday night at home, didn't come into my office, didn't ask for a one-on-one -on -one or anything, and just said, you're finished. So that was it. And I had commissioned a lot of stuff. The first two, three, four issues was stuff that was either in the drawer already or I had commissioned and started with. A combination of things. He never told me exactly why I was bounced, but it was an immediate fate accompli. I mean, I was not my own boss. Archie was engaged right away, and it was, you know, in a week I had to leave. I know he was, this sounds awful to claim, because I hate when I hear people say this, but there was a little bit of jealousy or resentment because I remember making the argument in trying to push back on the firing. Jim, I don't want your job. Don't think I want to climb any higher. I did his voice before. I know he was bothered by the fact that Alice Donenfeld and people from upstairs, the marketing department, licensing, they'd invite me to lunch when people came in from Europe and publishers because I spoke their language and I was Maybe a little more sophisticated than Shooter. So I didn't do it. I wasn't seeking that. And I was very happy in my little world. So that might have been part of it. Maybe budgets. But, you know, we had Frazetta on the first cover. And we had we were signing up some good people. And you signed Frazetta on that first cover? Yes. How expensive was that? Do you I remember it being a lot or not a lot? Or I, I'm just I, curious. I was surprised at how little it was. I negotiated with his wife, Ellie. It was a painting he had already done. And it was not published yet. So I think that's one thing that enabled us to get it relatively reasonably, but I surely do not remember how much it cost at that's all. Beautiful. It was a great choice on your part, too. What has Jim Shooter claimed about you that you feel is untrue? I mean, I've just read several things about being difficult to work with. I might be difficult doing an interview with, but I'm not difficult to work with in a no, magazine. You're great. Yeah, you're horrible, man. <laughs> you're so easy to interview it's criminal i think i'm easy to work with too i know i am creatively because i i don't have 
always the best ideas in the world. And I loved the act of brainstorming and all like that. And it might have been budgets and it might have been a rivalry thing. But listen, when I was bounced, two things I can tell you. One is I went to Stan and I said, maybe Epic can be even more independent because I'd like to keep working. And why be undershooter? Maybe I could. And then Stan said something that's, once again, talking about management theory, very smart. He said, Rico, I've hired Jim to run the shop and I can't contradict him. I have to support what he does. A bunch of people interviewed me when I left Marvel, Fan Press and others. One of them was a New York Times reporter. And I found this article recently, but Dick Brown, who did Hagar the Horrible, called me one Saturday morning, a few weeks after I got bounced. And he said, you're in the newspaper of record. I said, what are you talking about? Well, the first page, the front page of the New York Times business section had an article called Superhero Creators Wrangle. And they had a staff artist draw like a comic strip panel of an editor downshot, an editor breaking his pencil in anger at the desk and everything. And it was an article about my firing. This is very strange. But it was also about other people. And I think this has been a little bit lost in history. But yes, I got bounced and there were those problems and all that. But at the same time, Marv Wolfman, a couple writers got fired, contracts ended, and a couple creators quit in protest. A real cauldron under Shooter at that time. Now, for some darn reason, I was the most visible. The Comics Journal made kind of a big deal about it, but it was other writers and artists at the time, too. So it's like I was just, the, me and the Epic thing were kind of a microcosm of what was going on those few months. Now, Shooter finally established order again. He stayed, I guess, a few more years. That exodus of writers and creators, would you say you were part of that current of people that just left under Shooter? Would you say you're part of that current? Well, yeah, it was all at the same time. And I've forgotten that until I reread the article. But yeah, they quoted Marv Wolfman, too, about the surprise he got and some other writers about they couldn't work there any longer, all that sort of stuff. I see. So it was a, it was a calling at the time. Yeah. Rick, I have a super quick question. Just one thing on Epic. Were you the person that brought in Mirko Elick? Yes. I love those one-shot, one-page things that he did that were used in those early uh, epics. I just wanted to tell you, I, I thought those were fantastic. And what a find you made to, to get those in there. Terrific. A friend of mine, Irvin Rustamagic from Yugoslavia, and he wound up doing Cowboys and Aliens and all that stuff. He used to go to the Luca conventions, and I would go to his house in Sarajevo and all like this. But he introduced me to Mirko at a Luca convention, and it just didn't seem... No superhero or anything, but would you like to draw for this magazine? I think your stuff would be great and blah, 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 like that. So, yeah, that was the connection. And then he came to the U.S. and he wound up being art director of Time magazine. Yep. Great That's career. That's amazing. Yeah. So you opened the door for him. One more, last question about Epic. As far as the direction that Archie Goodwin took it in, do you feel like it was different from what you would have done? Or did you look at the, any of that stuff? It's probably small-minded of me, but it hurt too much for a couple of years to look at the magazine. And then I never went back. And I see them offered now, maybe a run of them or you know, a stack of them on eBay. And I think I should see what happened with my baby, but I have not done that. So I can't answer that. Interesting. Okay. So then last thing some fans want to know, in the comics journal, there was a caricature, almost looked like a political cartoon caricature of Stan Lee, Jim Shooter, and Jim Galton. And they're behind Roy Thomas, who's bending over with three knives in his back. And Jim Shooter says, say hi to Rick for us. And then it's signed 1980 Red Meat. Do you know anything about that picture? 
No, it's not at all familiar to me. I don't think I've ever, you know, we have visual memories, right? I don't ever remember trying to caricature Stan, certainly not Galton, although he sort of looked like Gene Wilder, but (laughs) (laughs) I believe Red Meat was Gary Quapitz or Fujitaki or someone else who drew for them. That would not have been me. Say hi to Rick. The reference would be me, but that would not. I wound up doing cartoons for the Comics Journal when Mike Fleischer, who just died, was suing the journal and Harlan Ellison, that multi-million dollar lawsuit in lower Manhattan. I would go to the courthouse and that's an issue where he slammed me. We wound up becoming great friends, by the way, Harlan and me. But that time he took me to task over some political thing. I did courtroom sketches, like you see on TV, of Shooter on the stand (laughs) and Groth on the stand and all this kind of stuff. And I loved it. And they ran them. Yeah, I was actually in the courtroom. I drove the judge, all you know, everyone. You gave an interview to Gary Groth in 1979. I couldn't tell by reading it. Were you still employed at Marvel or were you definitely out at that point? I was out. Okay. And it was recent enough that Gary Groth, who always, like a shark, tastes blood in the water, that's why he wanted to do a major length and cover story interview with him, with me. Not for any other reason, but that he knew he'd get me at a time where I'd say some things I regretted, and I probably did in that interview. Because you were in issue 52. Now, by issue 53 of Comics Journal, you were listed in the credits for art. And by 55, your column was in the magazine. So it seemed like it was all tied in and almost a recruitment. Yeah, he didn't do it to recruit me, though. I always admired what they did. And we brainstormed a lot. So I started writing a column and then eventually, well the strip reprints and Nemo and everything like that. So it was a very organic thing. And they did a great job promoting Weird World for us. They did that special issue. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I I like Gary, and I admired him, and Kim, and Mike Catron, too. And while I was still at Marvel, we used to bum around together. Gary went with me to San Diego to that convention. We went to Tijuana together. You don't know some of those stories. Wow. So I was pretty tight with the guys already. Now, when you first were working there, was Dwight Decker there at the same time? Yes. And would it be fair to say that you guys had similar political beliefs? Or I know he was a conservative. Did you guys get along or bond because of that? Yeah, I don't know if it was because of that. But yeah, he used to be when he was in college, he was in Young Americans for Freedom, the college political youth group that William F. Buckley started. So we had some similar ties, some mutual friends there. Yeah. Groth said in in an interview that you participated in, too, it was a retrospective of them, that political differences between him and Decker were part of what drove Decker. He described it almost as going nuts and leaving. Was that a problem for you working with Groth as well, or did you were you able to handle it? Not that I'm aware of, but never. He would roll with it. I love Dwight to pieces, but he is sort of an easy guy to play practical jokes on and poke a little bit. That's one reason I fit in with that circus, because that was their mode, you know. I never had a problem. In fact, it's to this extent that, you know, I've always taken grief for my political views, and some of it is just off the charts. And one time, and Gary saved the letter and showed it to me, one time Cat Ironwood wrote him a note. (laughs) And warned him against me because didn't he know he's been over my house often enough and how could he not know? And he used to come to my house in Connecticut. How could he not know that I had 
Nazi flags in the basement. <laughs> well, <laughs> the basement was the length of my whole house in Western Connecticut and filled with comic art on the walls. At that point, I had the first Pogo, the first Peanuts, the first Blondie originals. I mean, it was really a great collection and books everywhere. Was, and I had Gary and Kim Thompson down there all the time, Dwight Decker. I didn't have Nazi flags anyway, but Cat Ironwood said I did, thought I did, wrote to Gary. Well, you would think that that sort of sharing of supposed first-person knowledge would have bothered Gary. Even out of self-protection, he would have asked me about it or shown up unannounced one night or something. No, <laughs> it didn't bother him at all. And it wasn't true. But the point is that yeah, he and Dwight might have, you know, but if it wasn't over that, he would have driven Dwight Decker away anyway, over which was better Campbell's or Swanson's chicken broth or something. It would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> would have happened anyway. So uh, no, Gary was fine, and he was certainly, he did not share my politics, and no one else there did, I don't think. So around this time after Marvel, you moved over to write for Disney. Tell us about that, the multicultural thing, the multi-countries. And were you an editor, too? And how is that compared to the Marvel offices? No, I was not an editor. I was just a writer. Once again, my European connections came to the fore because that company I told you about that was interested in Moon Knight, and I had known them when I was at the syndicates, too. But one of the editors there in Denmark asked me if I'd want to write Disney stories, and I was out of work, ex-Marvel, and I said I'd love to give it a try. Now, Gutenberg, who's had the license for Disney comic books in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Germany, and England through subsidiaries, and these things sold like sons of guns. In Norway, there was a weekly Disney comic that sold 500,000 copies, and that's wow. a nation, nation of 4 million people. I mean... Stuff was crazy. That's amazing. So I sent some samples in. Burbank had nothing to do with this. This was the subsidiary in Denmark. Now, eventually, I told Dwight about it. Eventually, I told Don Rosa about it. And they went up getting rich to various degrees doing this over in Europe. But they liked my stuff. The page rate was fantastic. And I wound up writing for a couple years, like 30 pages a week. Wow. That's how I bought my house in Connecticut. I mean, it was heaven. And the way it would work is I would do story synopses, send them in. Then we'd have meetings in New York. They flew to New York once a month, and we'd have story conferences. And then after that started going, each story conference, I would turn in my scripts, and then we'd discuss new ones for the next month at this great page rate and great restaurants during the two or three days they flew in. And then finally... <laughs> I said half as a joke, don't you guys get tired of flying to New York and staying at the plaza? Why don't you fly me to Copenhagen once every other month or something? And they said, what a great idea. <laughs> so after a while, I, mean, I, got, <laughs> I, got, I got sick of herring, you know, it was great. So it was a great period. And I did a lot of that work. Now, eventually that stuff wound up, some of it, wound up being reprinted by Gladstone here, which was not in business then. But that was it pretty much. And I didn't draw it. I just wrote the, did the story synopses and then the dialogue after a while, just the synopses. This wasn't unfamiliar to you because you used as a kid go to the Dell offices, right? Yeah, I would, but I never had an ambition to write scripts. By the way, one thing that was beautiful about writing for them is they had a, you know, this is in the movies and everything else, a script Bible, right? 
character design, premises, personality traits of the characters. And when they handed me that, they said, you can read through this and stick to it. But basically, imitate Karl Barks for the Duck stories and imitate Gottfriedson for the Mickey stories. Yeah, that makes sense. What a great assignment, right? So, I mean, it was, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was fun and worthwhile and like the dream. And I had known Karl Barks. I mean, this is just fulfillment of a lot of dreams, but I'd never planned to do that. And I never drew comic strips either. South American artist whose pen name was Vicar, V-I-C-A-R, was Victor something. And he got Barks's art down to a T. So I would always request him for my duck stories and sometimes. Oh, gotcha. Did Walt Disney draw some of his own early strips? I'm not clear on that. No, the first couple of weeks were drawn by iWorks. Uh, Disney could draw and uh, Steamboat Willie was his, but I don't think he ever touched the strips. So now you worked at Disney right after Marvel. Was that for a few years? And then you started Nemo at Fantagraphics. Were you doing Disney at the same time as Nemo? Tell us about that. As well as I can remember it, Your Honor, to my best recollection. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you always know a politician's lying when they say, I think the Disney work dried up. I have to admit, 30 pages a week. And there are only so many mouse and duck stories. After a while, I turned to Chip and Dale and Little Bad Wolf and just other things because I was just running out of mouse and duck inspirations, you know. So I think that stopped. And I think I was talking to Gary about the concept of a strip magazine, Nemo, which except for the Flames of Gyro really was their first non-comics journal thing. It was before Amazing Heroes and everything. Nemo Magazine. Tell us about putting that together. Well, yeah, that was it. And, you know, I had a vision for doing everything I had already been doing and not getting paid for with comics history and interviews and reprinting, bringing the stuff back to life. And I just thought one day, if I'm not going to get paid for this, why don't I do it for some publisher? And at least it can be between two covers. I mean, I got paid $400 an issue for doing Nemo. And then after a while, they paid my insurance, which was a nice perk. Were you doing that freelance or were you an employee of Fantagraphics? Or was that all about? No, it was all freelance. I think I had a role in putting a bee in their bonnet to move to Stanford, Connecticut. I lived in Weston, Westport, Connecticut. And it was totally freelance. As I say, after a while, since they didn't pay me more, I asked if they'd pay my family's insurance as if I were an employee, but I never reported, you know, five days a week. I just tooled back and forth when I had to. And that's how I was done. Were you still working at, were you doing stuff for Comics Journal at the same time? I think I was continuing my polychromatic effulgence column. I think so, but it probably dried up. I was pouring everything I could into Nemo. What that overlapped with when I was working for the French publisher Dargo in their U.S. operation, and that overlapped. Nemo sort of bled over all that, and I'm very proud of that stuff. I think we should talk a little bit about Nemo in in terms of some of the stuff that you did get to work on, also the reprints that were done through Nemo as well, Popeye and Orphan Annie. What were some of the issues that you did that you were really super thrilled to get out there? I I know you did more than one on Little Orphan Annie, and I know Gray was one of your favorite artists of all times. Yeah, that's right. I was very happy to do that. 
I was sort of happy only because I thought it was important to do, but the Barks and Gottfriedson issue, we reprinted some stuff that had never been printed before, including the interview with them. Mike Gregg wrote a, a piece for the first or second issue about having worked with Hergé on Tintin that I think is very important history. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I was just proud to do. You know, I would slice pages out of my newspaper-bound volumes and take center spreads out of old puck magazines in order to reproduce this stuff well, even in black and white, for the readers. But there was some stuff I'd like to say that if we didn't do a name, well, people might have eventually taken notice of some of these things, but I was happy to break ground. And I had so many letters, a lot of letters, a lot of feedback from people, and I still hear it, that they never heard of this strip or only discovered that artist seeing it in name. And that makes it all worthwhile to me, you know. Absolutely. You've probably brought a lot of that into the more modern consciousness, which is huge. Uh, it would just be lost in time, and a lot of people would never have heard about any of that stuff. It's and it's good. sad that some they don't know. I mean, like King Aru, which I love, I don't think that has very much public awareness at all, and it's it's a favorite of mine. You know, also the great thing about working with that magazine, I had known Jack Kent who did that strip. And when I asked him about it, he sent me a stack of proofs. He said, do any and all you can. Your magazine's great. Yeah, I mean, it was really great to work with these people. I'll tell you this. When we did the Schultz interview, we, because Gary Groth came out with me, we went to California and he went up to uh, Santa Rosa with me. And Nemo was 20 some issues old at that point. And Schultz, he was such a modest guy. We met in the ice rink that he built by his studio, open to the public, at a table in the corner. We went to the counter there, the coffee shop aspect, and he got some pastries and coffee. And listen to this. Before he turns and brings the coffee to the table where Gary and I are sitting, he said to the clerk, he said, just put it on my tab, as if she didn't know who he was or something, you know? <laughs> but when he sat down, he said, I'll give you as long as you want with this interview. Maybe this was back in his uh, studio. And he said, I only have one question for you, Rick. And I said, okay, what's that? And he said, you've been doing Nemo for all these issues. He said, why is it you never asked until now to interview me? Now, that could sound egotistical, but he was actually a little hurt. And... I didn't know what to say, but Gary was brilliant. His comeback was, he said, well, it's probably like Rick sees you a little bit like he's Charlie Brown and you're the red-haired girl. So oh, that's, that's great. Uh, and we had a good interview. It was published. It was pirated, but published in Europe as a book. It was so long, an Italian publisher made a book out of it. Yeah. Now, you would have loved to have done Peanuts as one of the reprints, but there was no way you could afford that. Is that right? Well, some of that doesn't sit real well with me. But, you know, it's all about timing and everything. I had proposed, you know, we did the Popeye series and a few other reprints. And I proposed to Gary that Pogo should be reprinted. And I suggested it to the family, to Selby, Walt's widow, and romanced her a bit. Took her out to dinner a lot in New York, all this business. And never came together. The Kelly family has a lot of internal problems. Never happened. With Peanuts, I asked Sparky, and he said he wasn't happy with his book sales at that time, but, you know, Fantagraphics was known for being Fantagraphics. So it was timing. Well, here they are. Now they're doing Pogo, and they're doing Peanuts, and I'm not part of it, but God bless him. Milton Kniff. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, I knew Milt very well, yeah. And what kind of guy was he, just talking to him? Also very modest, but in a way, 
like Schultz was too. He was very proud of himself and had a bit of an ego that he hid behind his modesty. But it sounds like a put down. I don't mean it that way. I mean, just very accessible, open to any sort of discussion. One thing I admired about Milt, anything you'd ask him, any letter you'd write, he was back with it immediately. Anytime I'm late with correspondence or anything, I always try to think to be more like Milton Kniff. He took care of everything in which he talked about all his assistants through the years. So it gave me a cramp when R.C. Harvey came out with his biography or slammed me and Goulart and historians for claiming that Milt even had assistants. Well, Milt himself was very open to talking about his assistants. As far as the Nemo classic reprints, Annie, Popeye, Prince Valiant, what was it specifically about those that you wanted to print? You did mention that there were some things you wanted to print but couldn't. Tell me about what you did print versus what you didn't and why that was. Well, Prince Valiant, I had nothing to do with. Once again, there's a European connection. I was aware that this Danish publisher was doing Prince Valiant year by year, recoloring them. It's not great, but they were doing it. And I suggested to Kim Thompson at Fantagraphics, who spoke Danish, that they should try to get the license and do them back into English, you know. And that's how that started. So I never had any editorial connection with that. With other stuff was just things I thought deserved being reprinted. Red Barry, the detective strip, was great. So that was sort of a best of. Dickie Dare, the Kniff strip, we did, I think it was the complete collection of that. Popeye regretted having to be in black and white, but that was the budget at the time. And then recently they'd done them in color, and I wrote a couple of those introductions again. Those are nice. I read your introduction. I have that. Mm. As far as the books now, like when you guys first started reprinting these books and the package size, the book sizes, sometimes there's some variability. I mean, you guys were really the first guys doing this stuff. So were there lessons that were learned then that have been applied to the later books that come out these days? Yeah, I think so. Popeye series. Did one of you guys point this out? All of them were different sizes? Different sizes. Michael Vasallo pointed that out. Okay, yeah. I didn't even realize that, and I have them on my shelf. <laughs> yeah, I think production-wise and promotion-wise, Fenographics realized more than I did about them. You know, after a while, then I, when I started Remco and Slumberland, I did the complete Little Nemo in color and the complete Crazy Cat in color and Terry and Pirates and Polly and her pals. So I probably learned from those early Fenographics projects, at least regretting that they great color work had to be produced in black and white. So I determined to do them in color. And once again, Europe played a role because for what they sold in the U.S., number of copies, I couldn't afford to do full color. So I went to Europe and I made consortiums of publishers. So in the co-editions, simultaneous printings, we could bump up the print runs to 50, 80,000 or like that and make them affordable. Nice. Yeah, because I read Blackbeard's Wash Tubs Sundays, and those were black and white. And then they have these new ones that came out that are in color. So I read the black and white version, but I do like flipping through the color stuff. Oh, sure. Can we move to Dark Arts? The reason is, the reason I want this is 1983 to 85. This seems to be a, a really nice parallel to what you were doing over there, because there you're, you're seeing that these English land editions of some of the European properties get made. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know which is the cart and which is the horse on that, but Dargo wanted to... Asterix, Asterix is monstrously popular all over the world and never made a go of it in the U.S., so they thought it would, and these other titles. 
and Mike Gregg, Michelle Gregg, G-R-E-G. He was the French cartoonist, fabulously successful over there, who wanted to move to the U.S., and he was a half-owner of the their attempt to establish Dargo here and those titles. And then to condense a long story, one reason it didn't work is they chose the wrong titles in many cases. Is No Good, the series about the Middle Eastern caliph, as in caliphate, aha. Uh-huh. And there were other, <laughs> other <laughs> a little ahead of its time for being unpopular. And Lucky Luke, a Western in America, okay, but it doesn't have our sensibilities. So it was not all. Horace the- is fantastic, though, isn't he? The artist created for Lucky Luke, he's fantastic. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. And of course, he did work, and so did Gassini with uh, Harvey Kurtzman back in the 50s. So, you know, but the mix just wasn't right. And the French treated. Dargo USA, the way the French governments used to treat French colonies, which was dismissing them and not understanding them and taking advantage. So we would get telexes that would say, you know, we have printed 40,000 copies of Valerian in English. Please sell them. They're on the boat now. They would never run the translations past us. They were crummy. They had this series about an Italian inventor, genius from the Renaissance with a big white beard, and they call that series in translation Leonard. Well, it was Leonardo. It was a takeoff from Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci. So they thought in France, well, Leonardo was his Italian name. In America, they would be Leonards, the people with that name. So, I mean, nothing made much sense with what they dumped on us, and they didn't market well. They didn't want to spend money on promotions. One time, George Dargo himself came to the U.S. with this whole entourage, and he eventually went to California wine country and all this crap. And Mike Gregg asked me as a favor if I would arrange with Forbidden Planet in Manhattan to do a giant window display of the Dargo comics, Asterix and Lucky Luke and Valerian and everything. They did so Blueberry that, too, right? And Blueberry, Lieutenant Blueberry, which could have gone, but we needed to promote it better and the translations were crummy. Because what Mike wanted to do was have the limousine, and he had a limousine, casually drive down Broadway in Manhattan and then he could say, oh, look, look, George, look at the uh, all the Dargo titles in the window of that shop. <laughs> So, I mean, I just brilliant. a puppet in this, you know, so they could have done it better. It might have made a go of it. But when I would speak and travel and do radio interviews and stuff, I was more trying to put over the concept of graphic novels as done in Europe than I was trying to push the actual characters. And then we had Kelly Green and Leonard Starr and Stan Drake worked on that. And that was the American series about Americans in America. So. But we were too far down the tubes at that point. Was it fair to say that you were more comfortable with European comics than the American ones because they were less superhero focused? Comic yeah, books, yeah, maybe, maybe comic books. I'll put it this way. It was more just the fact that there was a variety of themes more than the actual themes themselves. Well, something that Jim really likes and that you really like, and you guys are really similar, and I'm starting to develop a taste for that, is genres just behind superheroes. To diversification of genres, a little more reality and different flavors. So it's interesting hearing you guys talk about that. If I can put it this way, it would almost bring the interview full circle because you've analyzed that correctly about my point of view. And I think I can say that the variety of genres and formats really is about just doubling down on the art form of the comic strip. 
just the storytelling and the potential and the excitement, the expressiveness that was available. And, you know, that's we're on the verge of that or we're seeing it. And that's good. It's only good. Did you ever work in animation? Closest I came was the Disney characters. And then Leonard Starr, who did on stage and Annie, was hired by Rankin Bass to do Thundercats. Not scripts, but story ideas for that. But, I mean, that's the closest I got. No, not really. Because I had read that somewhere, that you had some involvement in that Thundercats cartoon in the 80s. And so you basically plotted stories for that? Hardly at all. I didn't take to it too well. And also, I think I was short-sighted at the time. I could have done this, but I had become a... uh, I guess when I was at Marvel, I got saved, became more of a committed Christian than I had been. That's still the case, but I was a little more fanatic about it in the old days. And the Thundercats thing, because it was, you know, Leonard said the good guys have to win. Okay. And there's a little moral at the end. And I thought, well, it bothered me that it was not a Christian moral, which is, like I say, very short-sighted. And it is how the world works, but I didn't take to the project too well. I wish I had. So now what happened to Nemo in 1990? Why did it end? It's funny because I'm thinking of, uh, here's a scoop for you. I'll write this letter before this airs. I'm thinking of proposing to Gary that we start it up again. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, cool. Hey, and I'll tell you what. You know what put that bee in my bonnet? Not only you guys preparing for this and flattering me with little notices on the internet about when Rick did Nemo or Rick did that or whatever, but other people have been writing that too. And not a single name so far has been people I knew already, but just realizing that people are nostalgic over some of the work or appreciated what I did, or they remember things I forgot. And I thought, well, people are doing reprints, and God bless them, they're doing great productions, some people, IDW, Fanographics. But to do a monthly or quarterly magazine like Nemo used to be, shorter stories, more interviews, reprints that don't deserve whole books, but do deserve exposure. I'd like to start that again, you know. So why did it stop? Partly because, well, I started a job in California at that time, a desk job with two specialties at Christian ministry organization. And then also I had started to write books and I've written 74 of them since then. So I was writing books on TV history and country music. I, I think I went through the genres before, a biography of Bach and collaboration with Dr. Seuss. So I was busy and preoccupied with being a book author. How was working with him? Tell us about your experience with Dr. Seuss. He was one of the worst sons of bitches I ever worked with. What? It shatters a lot of people. He was very... He just tore up my my whole childhood. Expand on that. I'm curious more about that. You know, I think he was a Grinch in my experience, and I think any kindliness towards children he just preserved for the pages and words and pictures in his books and not in life. Here's the genesis of it. The book I did with him came out in slightly different form a few years ago again. It was a reprint of his early stuff, and I did a similar book about S.J. Perelman. It was based on my collection. His early cartoons, early stuff in Life and Judge and College Humor magazines, never yet been reprinted. And talked to him, and he wasn't especially, he wasn't really hot on the idea, but he said, gee, you have more of my old stuff than I do. Negotiations were difficult. It was all public domain. But here's it in a nutshell. Besides him just being difficult, he wanted me to change things in the text of some of his old humorous pieces, doctor some of the drawings. Now, I'll admit, some of the drawings had ethnic depictions he wasn't happy. Okay, I can understand that. But those we just didn't run. 
you know, you've got black characters and Jewish caricatures and all like that. But he said, you know, it's really not that bad a joke. So let's just take out those characters in the background or something like that. I said, no, this is history. I'm not, you're not going to redraw. You understand what I'm saying? The expurgated Seuss or something. It's very strange. So we locked horns over that and the stuff didn't. Someday I'd like to do the ones he wanted to censor. You know, they'd be interesting. That was it. It was just very difficult. And he made me sign something that said I would never do another Seuss reprint project, which I've still done, but my agent said they can't hold you to that. So it was just very unpleasant experience. However, it was a book of the month club alternate, so and not because of me. So I was happy to work with him ultimately. And didn't you love his Flit and Seuss Navy stuff? Wasn't that wonderful? Yeah, oh, it was terrific. Oh, my oh, God. The best of his work people have not seen. Oh, yeah. Do you was have a sex Jim? book? Oh, yeah, the one he did with the sisters. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to reprint that. That's probably public domain, too. It was called The Seven Lady Godivas. Didn't ever think of that as a sex book, but I, yes, it most definitely no, a sex book. It's just Seuss with tits. That's about it. It's <laughs> nice. It's oh, a would like that, Alex. story. I love that, in fact. <laughs> That sounds like something I'd be into. Okay, so you did the desk job and you were writing some books. Then you co-founded Hogan's Alley Magazine, Journal of the Cartoon Arts with Tom Hengis in 1994. How did this come about? And also, to be clear, you and Gary Groth didn't have a falling out in 1990. Is that correct? No, not really. But he's another one who does not mind picking fights or having fights. And we never really had a controversy, but oh, I said it before about blood in the water. It was either Remco or, or Slumberland. We got into real business problems. I told you I had to make these consortiums of 11 publishers, and I'm not a good businessman, and we had some problems. My printer sued me, and Groth, the Comics Journal, ran an article, Remco goes bankrupt or something like that, which it did not. So he was willing to place me gingerly under a bus, and I didn't appreciate that. Then we kissed and made up, and there were other things. And now we haven't done a book in a couple of years of this, but there's a Marshall Books imprint, a part of Fantagraphics. And we did a Johnny Gruel reprint book, of, you know, the Raggedy Ann artist. And we did that book about comics in advertising, which I'm very proud of. Drawing Power, it's called. So that came out. So, you know, we're pals again. Nice. Yeah, Hogatelli, yeah. I'd missed Nemo, and Tom was a friend from Fantagraphics days. And I approached him about being partners on that. And, well, that's basically it. Then it happened. Congrats on the Eisner, by the way. Oh, well, gee, thank you. Yeah, I got an Eisner and a Harvey and, yeah, a few things. I got the Yellow Kid Award at Italy and such things through the years. I've been reading it since day one, and I, I absolutely love it. That's great. I appreciate that. Tom's doing the majority of the work on Hogan's Alley. It's found its audience, and it's a bit more on current strips than I wanted in the mix originally. And I've proposed some articles through the years that he's actually said no thanks to, which, you know, was supposed to be co-editors. So, but boy, is it filling an important place, you know, the, all the aspects of comics and the reviews and just everything. And, and Tom does a great job with it. You've mentioned before that you and Tom work well together. What aspects of each other's personality jive well? Tom is a polymath. I mean, we have a lot of interests in common, not politics, so we don't talk about that. We agree on a lot of things. Have to say, you have a friendship where you sort of finish each other's sentences, and it's like that with Tom. We get along pretty well. I have that with both Alex and Jim. 
actually. Could you guys finish my sentence now for me? To I was, I was going to say, don't do a podcast. <laughs> it's, <the> way... <laughs> it's very messy. We start and finish each other's sentences quite frankly. <laughs> but which you probably noticed. I don't know, but I'm just saying these guys aren't my brothers from other mothers. Have a mute button. Yeah, yeah. Here's another. It's not a scoop because I've talked to Tom about it. And by the way, we had. You know, it's expensive to put a magazine out like that. At a point early on when we need an investor, I had an old friend from the strip business and everything, David Folkman, who was out in California, an art director for, I think, biker magazines or some motorcycle magazines or something. But David was a collector and put on exhibitions, and we collaborated on some projects. And he thought the magazine idea sounded great, and we needed an investor. And we asked if he'd come in as one-third, or I think slightly less than a third, part owner of the magazine, if he would art direct it, which, you know, normally we'd have to pay skillions an issue for someone to do. But David is doing that, and he's part owner, too, and I think he does a good job with it. That's the team. It's uh, Tom, David, and, and me. We put it out, and it's still going strong. Hogan's okay. Alley. I have I have friends who sarcastically call it Hogan's Annual. It's supposed to be quarterly, but you know. Now you've worked on Hogan's Alley. What interviews or articles from Hogan's Alley do you feel were particularly important to the study of comic strip or book history? Well, one I'm proud of is one of the very early ones I did with Johnny Hart. I got him to open up in ways that he told me he hadn't. <laughs> he talked about everything from his dreams as a beginning cartoonist to his faith and a turnaround in his life, uh, giving up being a drunk and all like that. As it was going on, I thought, this is great. You know, this is great chemistry. We're really, if anyone wants to know what motivates a cartoonist, what keeps him going in tough times or in good times or influences and everything. I mean, to me, I don't think I could conduct a better interview or have a better interview subject than Johnny was. So I'm proud of that. And then I guess bookends, a recent issue, I interviewed John Dirks. Well, I did this about 15, 20 years ago, but John Dirks, the son of Rudolph Dirks, the Cats and Jammer Kids creator, and I had interviewed him and it never found its way in print. We finally got it in print and I thought that was important to do too for comics history. How old was Rudolph Dirks when you interviewed him or, or when you had a friendship with him? I'm sorry. He was in his late 80s at that point, wow. early 90s. Yeah, because I was shocked that he was still alive when you said that, because I, I know when he died. But, oh my gosh, Cats and Jammer Kids are some of the best visual folly I've ever seen in my life. Just it's some great another, stuff. Another, I'm glad to hear you say it. It's another gem that people don't appreciate. I mean, yeah, Cats and Jammer Kids, two brats, and it lasted a long time. No, it was brilliant what he did. And he was the first cartoonist to do signs of pain and lines of vision, you know, dotted lines and a lot of comic strip conventions he came up with. And it's really worthy of appreciation. So now in 2009, you teamed up with Jonathan Barley to launch Rosebud Archives, dedicated to the preservation and publication of comic art in prints, portfolios and books. What is Rosebud? Is it a comic art collection, old Sundays stacked together, and it's in a warehouse somewhere. Is it a bunch of scanned stuff? What What is it exactly? Well, for one thing, it's a bit moribund right now. We haven't done stuff recently. And John is in New Jersey, and he's doing different things before we start it up again. But the archives, part of Rosebud Archives, is basically my collection and his. I have a bit more stuff than he has. I have eight storage units. Every room in my house, 
and a lot of my stuff is at John's in New Jersey, where he's furiously scanning it. And John has a good collection, too. I collect newspaper strips and magazines and ephemera, political cartoons and merchandising and toys and games and posters, all sorts of stuff related to comics, as well as my other collecting interests. So that percentage of like what your storage is like, is it like 60 percent comics, actual artwork? 40% 40% toys and games. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, I've never thought of that. Probably three-fourths of it is comic. Wow. Two-thirds, anyways, comics, I would say. And it fills, to put another way, because I've had to haul it, it's, it fills more than two 40-foot moving vans. So it's a pretty wow. big collection. That's and huge. So we intended to make this stuff from our collections available to people, accessible to people, in a high-toned way. So... If you see on the Rosebud Archive site, it's posters and prints, portfolios, a number of books, the complete John Held's cover book, the complete Percy Crosby Skippy covers from Life magazine. Also, Albrecht Durer's Apocalypse, some fine art projects, too. And we're going to do Heinrich Klei reprints and such. And we came up with this idea of what we call pad folios, that it can be these can be read as books, softback books. But we bind them in such a way that if you tug a little bit, they come out and you can make them prints for framing or whatever. But we also do them as framing. And John's original idea was to do complete discs of comics. The Hearst Funnies completely from 1900 to 1910, for instance. And then we went to print and we bought a lot of equipment to do this stuff with. And now we're going back to thinking of issuing discs and You know, there's a challenge with that because you spend a lot of money and time and come out with a disc and someone can copy it right away, you know, so it's it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. But basically the idea is not so much to monetize, although that's part of it, but to make accessible stuff that's still obscure that I've spent my lifetime creating. That's it in a nutshell. So, Rick, tell us about the project you did with the U.S. Postal Service. You know, I've been blessed really have been blessed by not just my main work, but these dozens of peripheral projects that wind up being puzzle pieces and the whole thing. And the U.S. Postal Service came to me in 95, maybe 1994, and said they wanted to do a commemorative set on the uh, history of comics for the uh, 100th anniversary of the comic strip. 95, 96, whatever. And they had started on it, but they were very frustrated by the quality of the images that were chosen for them to work with. And could I help them? Well, my attitude was philately will get you nowhere. It was great. I was very happy to say yes. And what grew from providing pictures for the 20 stamps, images, to switching a lot of them out, because they had crummy examples in their first go through, the crummy ones. Well, for instance, and I won't tell you who suggested the images to them. It's someone who's an assistant to a strip artist. For instance, for the Gasoline Alley stamp in their working version, and I kept all the, the copies of the versions, they had a picture of an old panel from a strip with Walton Skizix in a car, an old Model T or something, in a desert, driving away from the viewer. So... They were about, you know, fly specks big, only their heads, and we could see the rear of a car. What does that say about Gasoline Alley, you know? I mean, they were just very 
funny choice today. Brenda Starr, and it was Brenda crying on a bed and a villain standing over. It looked like she had just been raped. You know, very stupid choices. I'll give you a better menu to choose from, and they were happy. Finally, they hired me. It was a one-year consultancy. So I suggested images. I switched out some of the strips. They had Tunaville trolley. I suggested a couple others. And then finally, I wrote information on the back of old stamps, which they'd only done once before. And that was interesting. The reason they do that is they try to sell twice the number of stamps so people can have both sets, you know. It's not to inform the public. It's to make more money. Did Yellow Kid make the stamps? I don't remember. Yes. Yeah, Yellow Kid did, yeah. But then finally I talked, and they'd done this before, but I said, you've done this before. Why not a book that you can sell? So we wound up doing a 100-page book that was sold in post offices that had the stamps, and it was very handsomely done. Uh, history of each strip and everything. And then when it came out, they sent me on a tour of 11 cities for the rollout. We had events in each city, local cartoonists. So it turned out to be a big deal, and and I'm proud of it. It came out okay. That's fantastic. That's something I did not know until Al brought it to my attention. So thank you, Al. Is there essentially anything in the long history of what we talked about today, was there anything you felt about your time on Nemo, your time on Hogan's Alley, your time at Marvel, your time in the newspaper syndicates, your time as a kid collecting strips? Was there anything in all that that you wanted to make sure was said before we wrap up the interview? I mean, there are aspects of my life or so-called career we didn't talk about, and that's fine. I think the subjects we did talk about, we really chewed the flavor out of that gum, so I appreciate it. One thing... I would add that I would want someone to know or anyone listening to this, if you choose, keep it in. And that's this. God has blessed me. I've been very curious about a lot of things, and I've been able to follow those trails. I'm blessed that I was interested in an art form when it was still growing and the creators were accessible and the materials still existed, the the prints and, you know, the magazines and papers and such. I feel privileged to have done that. The people I've met, I mean, it's unbelievable, just in cartooning. I mean, to say you guys are talking and maybe people listening to this will be a lot younger, but here it is, a guy who actually met Rudolf Dirks. Oh, that's started, amazing. Started the art form back in 1897. I mean, what's the likelihood of that? So I've been very privileged to be in a place growing up in the New York area, having a father like my father, that I was able to be interested in this art form and appreciate it and have a role in popularizing the early days and such like that. So Where did um, Captain Rudolph Dirk sound? He, had, he did not have an accent. It was one thing I was very interested in. He was born in Germany, but no, he had lost his accent. Having said all that, and the fields I've worked in, I mean, now mostly I'm doing work in the Christian field and all like that, but I have a lot of books still in me. And I have the feeling after all that I've done that I want my retirement party to be on the same day as my funeral. I'm more interested in researching and collecting and writing and analyzing and sharing than I ever have been. may sound corny, but we used the word before about something. It's a mission. I just want 
more Little Rick Marshalls out there to discover what has excited me and floated my boat. And that's all we really do in life in anything we're talking about, whether it's comics or anything else, we're passing the baton, whether it's our own kids or an unseen audience out there. I'm really pretty lucky to say I've been able to do, you know, a little bit of that. And by the way, it makes it so special that you're picking my brain and letting me share this stuff, because otherwise... I really don't know if a lot of this stuff will die with me or anyone cares about what I did. You leave a massive set of footprints. So, yeah, it'll be going forward. That's for sure. And I'd like to ask that me, Alex, and Jim be your pallbearers because <laughs> we would like to be that there when it, all, when, when it all comes full circle. I'm just saying this has been fantastic. And, Alex, do you have anything to say to Rick before we... Uh, I'm a big fan, and especially over the past four years when I started this obsession to figure out what happened in the 20th century with comics, and when I realized that I had just, I was born in 78, so I just, I just caught the end of the 20th century. I was an 80s kid, and, and then when I realized that my little brother, who's 10 years younger, and the people after that, internet hit their brains, I realized that a really incredible century just went by. And I had just caught the tail end of that. And I'm glad I still even maintain some of that 20th century mentality. And so I guess I'm just obsessed with figuring out what just passed me by and what was I late to the party for. And I'm glad I experienced something. And the more I looked into it, the more I see Rick Marshall's name as part of this 20th century comic experience. When that clicked for me, I'm just really excited and grateful that you spent time with us to help us and a lot of people kind of figure out what are some of the aspects that made the 20th century so special? I appreciate that. It's why, you know, you quoted Bostonian magazine about popular culture. It's really why what you just said about the 20th century experience and everything. Americans are not going to really appreciate this or the world won't until maybe a century from now, if the world lasts that long. There's been a whole revolution in so many subliminal ways about perceptions and pastimes and things that, and what's America's contribution? You know, Greeks said philosophy, Romans had the law, and for better or worse, ours is the plastic arts, entertainment and commerce. And we don't have to apologize about that with comics. That's what makes the art form. And uh, to be able to, I might be wrong with that analysis, but if I'm right, I'm trying to get a head start on that and see the interrelationship. One book I'd love to do, I have a lot of books I want to write. And one I want to do, a modern version of Plutarch, you know, Plutarch's lives. He took a figure from ancient Greece and paired that person with someone from Rome and found similarities in the contributions they made and all like that. It's a very interesting way to do biographies, and no one did that since. And I would like to write a similar book taking a comic strip from the 30s and a TV series from the golden age from the 50s and seeing what cultural influences they were informed by and affected and do that with people and art form and sort of tie, not sort of, tie together the movies and radio and comics and all the forms together. And I think it would be really a great way to understand what's been happening in our lives when it's hard to notice it because it's right up close and it changes next week, you know? Well, thanks so much, Rick Marshall. This has been an awesome interview here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. We totally appreciate your participation in this exciting question and answer session about your comic life. Cheers. <laughs>